My message is not political. My message is human. It's about humans. This idea of who we are, how we fit in, where we fit in is something that we're doing our entire lives. And so by me telling my story, it's using a form of what's known in academic circles as intergroup contact theory. Intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. Look, you may have thought all along that what you're thinking about yourself or others is is set and dried. But you know what? Open up your mind, open it up and look again and have a broader perspective. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is another one of our emerging thought leaders, and he's got a heck of a story to share. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Michael Fosberg. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hey, Nikki. How are you? I am blessed and grateful. Good to have you here, my friend. Thanks for being on the call with us today. So, Michael, let us begin by asking you the all-important question. Tell me your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Michael Fosberg? <laughs> well, first I would temper the great, but I uh, I, I appreciate this sentiment. I uh, My story and the background, which you're asking for, is interesting because my personal story became my life's work and and not everybody can can attest to that in other words um the journey that i took uh back in uh oh my gosh it was 1993 the quest to find my biological father transformed into what i do today for a living which is a maybe a strange occurrence <laughs> an unusual occurrence but uh but uh, indeed one that has been um i feel very blessed and very honored to be able to share and to be able to do so i'm going to tell you and your listeners this the, the story the background as you asked so I was raised in a working class white family in the northern suburbs of Chicago, a little uh, a community, a little town by the name of Waukegan. And I was raised by my biological mother, who was uh, who is of Armenian descent and an adoptive stepfather who was of Swedish descent. And uh, when I was uh, in my early 30s, I had moved to California at the time and uh, um my sister, who I should mention is my half-sister, so my parents, um, once they got married, again, my stepfather and my biological mother got married when I was about four or five, and then a few years later, they had um, two more children. So my stepsister called me one morning to tell me that our parents were getting a divorce, and I realized when she told me this that I didn't know who my biological father was. As I just mentioned, my sister and I share a biological mother, but her biological father is actually my stepfather. So 
Um, understanding this, I got off the phone with her. And I was very upset. My parents were getting a divorce. I mean, I know I was in my early 30s, but it was still a, 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 a big shock for my system. And at the time, I had a British girlfriend, and she suggested that I should ask my mother some questions about my biological father. And so I called up my mother, and she gave me a couple of bits of information. She told me his name, and she told me that um, sometime, I don't know, 30 years ago when she spoke with him, she thought that he lived in the Detroit area. She wasn't sure, but she thought maybe that was the case. So armed with these two small bits of information, his name and the fact that maybe 30 years ago he lived in the Detroit area, I went to the library. This is before the age of the internet when we used the internet to, to, to do everything. And libraries, I don't know if you remember this, libraries used to have an ancient device that we used to find people. It was called a phone book. And so I looked for the phone book, the Detroit phone book in the reference section in the Santa Monica Public Library, Santa Monica, California. I got the phone book. I looked up his name, John Sidney Woods. There were about five or six listings. I copied them all down on a little piece of paper. I raced home to my apartment, which was about the size of this screen that we're currently seeing one another on. I lived in a little tiny one-room rent-controlled apartment. I paced back and forth trying to decide, okay, what do I do if I call someone? What do I say? How do I find out if it's the guy? How many men could have that same name, John Sidney Woods? So I finally got the courage. I grabbed the phone. I picked it up. I dialed the first name on the list. A guy answers the phone. And he, I said, I'm looking for a John Sidney Woods. And he said, you're speaking with him. And I realized, wait a minute, it can't be that easy, right? I mean, I can't. I, it can't be possible that I discovered this guy in the first phone call. So I said, well, um, did you live in the Boston area in 1957? Because that's where I lived with my parents when I was a small child. And uh, he paused and he said, yes, I did. And then I said, were you married to an Armenian woman by the name of Adrian Pilibosian? And he paused again. It seemed like an hour at this point. And he said, yes, I was. And I realized I had tracked my biological father down in a first phone call after 30 years. And I blurted out, my name is Michael Fosberg and I'm your son. And he was like, oh my God, son, how are you? Where are you? I told him I was in California. We started talking. We trying to wrap our heads around, okay, you're my dad and I'm your son. After 30 years, how do we talk to one another? What do you say to some guy who you haven't seen for 30 years? Who's your dad? And so we sort of stumbled through this conversation. And then after a bit, he says to me, you know, son, there's a couple of things you should know. I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I thought, okay, aside from not telling me about him, I mean, what else could there be, right? And he says, well, first of all, I want you to know that no matter what you were told or what you thought happened, I've always loved you and I've thought about you a lot. And I have to tell you, this was my father telling me for the first time in my memory, in my life, that he loved me. I was absolutely elated. And then he said, there's one other thing I'm sure your mother's never told you. And I said, what? And he said, I'm African-American. Now, remember, I mentioned that I grew up in a working class white family with my biological mother, who was of Armenian descent, and an adoptive stepfather who was Swedish descent, thinking that I was white my entire life. And now I discovered my biological father and discovered, oh, wait a minute, I'm half black.
And he proceeded to tell me about my family history dating all the way back to slavery. My great-great-grandfather was a member of the 54th Regiment in the Colored Infantry Unit in the Civil War. My great-grandfather was an all-star pitcher in the Negro Leagues. He pitched for the St. Louis Stars. My grandfather was a genius in the science and engineering departments at Norfolk State University, a historically black college, is named after my grandfather. And he said, your grandparents are still alive. They're living in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I was like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we get back to the black part? Because I'm still trying to wrap my head around the fact that I'm half black. And we talked for a while and we exchanged phone numbers and we said goodbyes and we hung up the phone. And as I said to you, Nikki, before, this was the beginning of my journey, discovering that after all these years, thinking that I was one thing and then discovering that I'm a lot more and different than that thing that I thought I was. And so... I eventually met my grandparents. They were still alive, as I mentioned. They called me. I spoke to them. I went and met them. I met cousins and aunts and uncles at different places all around the country. And I started to write this into, you know, I didn't know what. I was a writer, but I'd never written a book. But I thought, you know, maybe it'd make a great book. And so I started to to compose it as a book. And one night I was asked to read several chapters from the book for a group of people. There are probably 50 or 60 people. And uh, I started to read, I, I, I chose four or five stories and I read these stories aloud to this group of people and people were laughing and they were crying and they came up to me afterwards and they said, you should be doing this. And I said, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I'm writing the book. And they said, no, 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 no. You should be performing this. Now, I have a background in theater. I've, I've been involved as an actor, as a playwright, as a teacher all my life. And so that seemed like a natural thing to, to, to put it up on stage, perhaps as a one-man play. And so that's what I did uh, back in October of 20, 2001, actually. We did our first production of the play, and it just took off. People just it couldn't get enough of it. They were just crazy about it. And one night I was doing a play, a production of it for a group of students, a young uh, group of students, high school students. And afterwards I stuck around, you know, sometimes they'll have the artists come out and have a dialogue with the students. And so I was standing there having a dialogue with the students and I expected them to ask me questions about, you know, how did you decide on the accents or the dialects to use in the play? Or how did you decide on, on the arc of the story or the characters or whatever it might be? But instead of asking me those questions, they asked me questions about race and identity. Like they, what box do you check on, off on applications? And why is race important? Why, why is it or isn't it important? Why are we or aren't we talking about it? And how do we go about identifying ourselves? How do we look at ourselves and how do we look at, how do we look at other people? And I realized how much of a resonance it had in so many people, not just young people, but also adults. And so that set me off on this journey that I mentioned at the top of this, where now I take the play and I perform it. It's about 45 minutes. And then I facilitate a conversation about race and identity, how we see ourselves and how we look at our peop at other at other people. And it's used as a, a catalyst for what we might call diversity, equity, and inclusion training to allow people to have this conversation that most often we don't have, and to get us to realize that we have more in common than we have different. 
that's a heck of a story, Michael. <laughs> There's so much to unpack there. Yeah. Um, let me start by saying I'm originally a Christian immigrant from Iran. Ah. Now, I don't know how much you know about Iran and the makeup of the country and yeah. the people. Not a whole lot of non-Muslims there. Yes. It's yes. 98.9% Muslim. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Right. So, and all the other religions are not are just over 1%. And there's Christian, Jewish, Zoroastrian. And not only that, but I'm an, but my father is an ethnic Assyrian, not Syrian, but Assyrian. Assyrian, yes, I'm familiar. Which is, you're familiar. Which they don't have a, a state anymore, but the people uh, abound. One of the most famous podcasters in America today is an Iranian Armenian Assyrian named Patrick Bet David. Ah. Uh, so that's um, so the whole question of identity has been one that has been at the forefront of my mind since I was a kid because just because in Iran, well, I don't want to insult anybody, but you know, people of my ethnicity from the Middle East just kind of laugh at North Americans when they go, oh my God, this is North America. So there's so much racism we experience. I go, oh, someone shoot at you for who you are lately? Someone try to, no, no? Oh, okay, then you're good. Did someone deny you a loan, a job? I know that used to happen, but does that happen lately? No, then you're good. Then shut up. That's that's kind of what we would say because I remember being a kid and I wore a cross on my neck and every day um, there was a group of kids who would come and beat me up until I learned how to fight and defend myself properly. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then I got a reputation for being crazy and they left me alone <laughs> because a couple of them beat me up. I grabbed a couple of bricks and I beat the backs of their heads in and they go, that, that guy's crazy. Don't, don't, don't bother him. Leave him alone. Yeah. And when I hear a story like yours, the first thing that popped into my mind was, wow, I wonder what he thought the moment he heard that. Like that was like a shock to the system. I'll bet. Yeah. yeah. And then, at the, then I thought, well, then, you know, his dad told him he loved him and he wanted to see him. And I thought, okay, what was that like? What was that reunion like? What was it like for him to meet his father? What was it like for him to be with his grandparents and his cousins? It's like he got a whole new family, group of people who accepted him and loved him, hopefully, for the most part, right away. That's right. That must have been pretty darn cool. Yes, and, indeed. And anyways, all those thoughts were going through my head as you were sharing your your narrative. And, yeah. Uh, it was it was very powerful. So, before I get to my set questions, I just want to ask you, um, what was it like the first time you actually met your father in person? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, uh, I described this uh, very uh, vividly in the play, um, where I play actually both myself and my father <laughs> in that meeting. It's 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 a crazy moment. Um, I one of the also kind of crazy things about it is I look exactly like my father, exactly. So when he entered the room, so I was at my grandparents' house in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So first I met my grandparents and that was, of course, an amazing experience to meet these beautiful 80-year-old black Christian um uh, Baptist, uh, Southern, uh, people with a rich history dating again, all the way back to slavery. They were wonderful. And then, uh, the next day my father arrived from Detroit 
and uh, he walked in the room and I swear it was like looking in a mirror. It was chilling. I mean, just at, I looked exact. Not only did I look like him, but I tilted my head in the same way he tilts his head. I move my hands in the same way he moves his hands. I mean, we had all these distinct physical characteristics. And again, I wasn't raised by him. So how did I mean, sure, I might look like him, but I, how did I get the tilt in the head and the movement of my hands and the same vocal intonation? We had the same resonance in our voices. And so it was an absolutely incredible experience to, 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 to have him walk in the room. And it, again, it was like looking in a mirror. And so that combined with the fact that here was my dad for the first time meeting my dad. And, and I should mention, it wasn't as if I had a terrible childhood or the man who raised me I, that I didn't get along with him or we didn't love one another. That wasn't the case at all. He was a very loving father. My stepfather I'm speaking of, John Fosberg, was a very loving father, very engaged. For the most part, he was kind of a workaholic, but he was engaged with me and, and his um, biological children as well. Um, but to see the biological father standing in front of you mirroring who you are was just, um, you know, kind of an overwhelming, uh, experience for me. Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah. Good for you. So you experienced all this and then you made it into your life's work. Yeah. Could you unpack what that process <laughs> looked like? Yeah. And, and while you unpack that, yeah. I want you to tell me, like, your message obviously addresses a problem that many people have, uh, yes. a need, an itch. Let's not call it a problem. That's maybe not the best term. An itch many people want to scratch. I think that's a better way sure. to put it. Sure. I'd like you to speak to that as well, please. Sure, sure. Well, first of all, the first part of your question, you know, how did it? How did I transform it into what has become my life's work? I got to tell you, Nikki, I did not plan this. This was not, this was not a planned journey. <laughs> I mean, I I did indeed realize that I had a pretty remarkable story, a remarkable journey, and that I wanted to write about it. And uh, because I was a writer, and I wanted to tell people the story, um, but I I didn't plan any of this. I once uh, I read those first few stories and then people encouraged me to put it up as a play. Even then I wasn't like completely convinced, like that's what I needed to do. And then I did another reading a few months later and people were just adamant about it. And I just realized, okay, I've got to, I've I, I got to do this. And so I enlisted the help of a director and a producer and a theater, and we put it up in a theater. And then, as I mentioned, it just sort of took off. People were just like, crazy about it. It just opened up doors for people to talk. And as you said, like, this is an itch that people want to scratch, you know, like, why, 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 uh, why did they want to? Because we're all struggling with this idea of who we are, and how we fit in, and where do we fit in. And so, it's a universal human uh, experience. We're all on this, we're all on a journey of identity. We're all, all and, and, and that journey goes on our entire lives. It doesn't stop. It's not like you get to a certain place in your life and you go, that's it, I'm done. I know exactly who I am, where I'm going, what I'm doing. It changes for us our entire lives. So 
I'll give you an example. These are these are these are simple examples. But so I don't know, you you go to let's say you go to college and you graduate from college and now suddenly you see yourself as a college graduate, perhaps. Right. OK. And then you go into some sort of a profession and suddenly you see yourself as, I don't know, maybe a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a musician or a podcaster or whatever it might be. You now see yourself that's a part of your identity. This is in addition to other identities, whether it's Iranian, Assyrian, Black, Hispanic, whatever, gay, straight, whatever. All these different identities are layered on top of one another. So let's say then um, you meet someone in your life and you decide to get married. And now you see yourself as a husband or a wife or whatever it might be, a spouse. And then maybe you have kids. You decide to have kids and now you see yourself as a parent, and then maybe your kids have kids. And then suddenly you see yourself as a grandparent. Again, these are simplistic identity markers, but these are things that many of us go through our entire lives and it goes on our entire lives. So again, this idea of who we are, how we fit in, where we fit in is something that we're doing our entire lives. And so by me telling my story, it's using a form of what's known in academic circles as intergroup contact theory. Intergroup contact theory is the proven theory that by sharing our personal stories across majority and minority populations, we can break down the prejudices that exist between us by discovering we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. We have more in common than we have different. So again, to the second part of your question, again, everyone grapples, whether they're conscious of it or not, and many of us are a bit unconscious of that journey, we are always constant, uh, unconsciously or consciously grappling with who I am, who we are, and how we fit in. And so that's the itch that the story scratches that everybody um, becomes so engaged and involved with when I perform the show. And as I said, it opens up this door for us to understand we have more in common than we have different. That's a fact. You know, that I think would make a good title for this episode. <laughs> yes. We have more in common than we have differences. And what's the dent you're looking to make in the universe mm. with this? Yeah. Well, uh, when I started doing the show and started telling the story, well, first started telling the story, started doing the show, um, I discovered that it had resonance with young people. I started touring to high schools and colleges, and then I started touring to corporations and government agencies and military bases and law firms and not-for-profits. And you can only imagine, here's a guy walking into, I don't know, let's say a, you know, a couple hundred person law firm. They don't have a theater. I'm not walking into a theater to do a play. I'm walking into maybe their conference room and I'm standing up in front of, I don't know, 100 or 200 different lawyers and uh, law assistants and all of these. And I'm I'm performing the play and doing I'm doing over a dozen different characters over the course of 45 minutes. And they've never seen anything like it. They're, you know, half of them are like when I start, they're kind of like scratching their heads like, what the hell is going on here? What is what is this guy doing? And then as it goes on and on, they just get sucked into the story, not just because it's a fascinating story, but also because everybody has a personal story. And so once it get, they get sucked into it, and then by the time I get to the end, as you experienced when I told the story, like they have, their mind is like, 
exploding with all these different thoughts of questions and, and their own identities and how they, um, you know, how they identify, how they look at other people. So what is the impact? Well, I can tell you in some places that I walk into, I would say probably a majority of the people walk out with an, an amazing experience and they're sharing what happened with their colleagues, with their family, with their friends. They're writing me. I get emails all the time. They're ordering books from me. I've, I've published the memoir, Incognito, an American Odyssey of Race and Self-Discovery. I published a second book called Nobody Wants to Talk About It, Race, Identity, and the Difficulties in Forging Meaningful Conversations. They're, they're, they're purchasing the books um, and, and they're really engaged and want to be engaged in this conversation and in finding more commonalities and embracing differences. But I will also admit that there will be one or two or maybe a handful of people that will walk out of the room after a presentation, after a dialogue, and they will say, okay, well, that was a waste of my time. I can't get that time back. And the fact of the matter is, look, we don't all see race and identity in the same way. We don't all talk about it in the same way. Some of us never talk about it or see any reason to talk about it. Um, we Look, we don't all read the same book and walk away with the same meaning. We don't all go to the same movie and go, oh, that movie was incredible. Some of us don't like that incredible movie. You know what I mean? And so I understand that some people, that for them, they they may not like this form or what I'm doing, but for most people, I'm having a, an effect on them which A, might change the way that they look at themselves, or B, might change the way they look at someone else. And, and that's what I'm trying to impact, is trying to present that as this, look, you may have thought all along that what you're thinking about yourself or others is, is set and dried. But you know what? Open up your mind. Open it up and look again and, and have a broader perspective. I like what you said. Um, I'll be candid with you. There are many people today who use those issues, race and identity, mm -hmm. as political cudgels to shut up people they disagree with. They call them racist when there's no, no real reason to call those people racist. They use that in order to frighten people and silence them because no one wants to be called a racist today. It's the worst thing you can be called right. in, in Western society, uh, worse than a murderer, worse than a rapist, which just blows me away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and there's people that use, use those terms um, in, a, in a hucksterish fashion in order to gain power and make money. But when I listen to you speak, I, I see you as a, as a very human person who is not looking to have power over anybody, who's not looking to use it to like get a sinecure for himself and make money from it from the government teat. You're actually looking to make human beings understand each other better. And God damn it, Michael, we need like a thousand of you <laughs> a day. Like, like, yes. like we need, we need a thousand of you a day coming up with a thousand more a day. Yes. And it still wouldn't be enough. Yeah. Yeah. To help every person who feels a little bit scared, who feels a little bit unsure, just go, hey man, I'm okay. Who I am is okay. It doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't, my background doesn't matter. My sexual preferences don't matter. My skin color doesn't matter. My religion doesn't matter. Right. I'm a human being just like you. 
Right. I'm right. just like you. I bleed the same red as you do. I want to have a good family. I want my family to be well taken care of. I want a chance to pursue my dreams. I want a chance to see my ki- my kids do well in life. And I'm just like you. And when I hear you, that's what I hear from what you're saying. I don't know yeah. if that's what you intend for me to hear, yeah. but that's what I am hearing. And I just go, that's beautiful, man. Yeah. I'm freaking beautiful. And I want to see you be able to get your message out in a bigger way to more people. Because I think if they get past whatever, <laughs> I don't know what other word to use, prejudices they have about about the topic. Yeah. Um, if they just listen to a human being telling a human story, they'll be moved. Absolutely. They'll be moved in a really good way. That's what I see. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I, I Look, I, I certainly talk about a wide range of topics during uh, presentations because people ask me a wide range of questions following the show, and I'm happy to address any of those. But my message is not political. My message is human. It's about humans. Yeah. Um, I have had pushback at uh, presentations where people have uh, said that they have claimed your message is political. And I'm like, it's not. I'm not I'm not up here talking about you don't see me talking about politics. That's not my mess. Actually, I would talk about politics. The fact the fact of the matter is, is that we're not even really addressing one another in the political sphere. And we have more in common, whether you are left or right or conservative or progressive or Democrat or Republican. We actually have more in common. Then we have different, and yet we are, as you mentioned, cudgel, using it as a cudgel to beat one another over the head with. If we took the time to find out those commonalities, we'd be in a much better shape. I once did a speech where I uh, started the speech by uh, asking um, the room full of people, saying, can I see the hands in the room of all the people who are optimists? And, you know, a bunch of hands went up and people are optimists. And I said, okay, great. Can I see all the hands of the people in the room who are feminists? And people, you know, put their hands up and you know, all this. And then I, I said, okay, great. Can I see the hands of all the people in the room who are racists? Chill went over the room. No hands went up. And I was like, yeah, okay. You see, just saying that word elicits fear. And, 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 and that's not to suggest that there isn't racism in this society, but it is to suggest that we need to, start by finding the commonalities and then embracing the differences. And so um, the R word is very toxic, much like the N word is toxic. And so so I try to um, steer clear of that and try to steer more towards, again, commonalities um, because we absolutely have more in common than we don't. Yeah. No, well said, man. Um, I'm uh... Uh, very pleasantly and uh, positively surprised by the direction this conversation took. <laughs> I, I appreciate your story. I appreciate your heart. Sure, um, sure. And uh, uh, for whatever it's worth, and this is a conversation for another time, maybe not on this podcast, but maybe on a, on a, on a, on a, in a different forum sure. about some of the reasons why all that is taking place in the world today. And I, yeah. I think, I think that, um, I think the average person uh, has more good in them than bad. I think the average person is sincere in their desire to have a good life for themselves and as many people as they can help. I, I really believe that very strongly. Yeah. Unfortunately, um, the people that tend to get into power, I don't, I don't want to say all of them, but many of them, 
they don't necessarily think that way. Many of them, unfortunately, are narcissists, are, are borderline yeah, yeah. sociopaths, and they are really good at putting on the mask and really good at uh, at using whatever means are necessary to win power. And, you know, again, not to get political, but I actually studied political science in school. Uh, <laughs> I have a master's degree at the School of Foreign Service from in Georgetown University. And, and my undergraduate bit was business and political science and, and, and economics, all three three majors. And so I, I've studied American politics. You know, I live in Canada. I'm from Iran originally. Yeah. And I, I look at, you know, the current occupant of the White House. And I, I saw speeches of this man from the 70s. He yeah. was buddies with segregationists. Give me a freaking break. And today he's Mr. Super Progressive. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, what? Human being doesn't change that much in a lifetime, right? He Back then, it was politically expedient for him to be buddies with segregationists. And today, it's politically expedient for him to be super progressive. And that, unfortunately, is what a lot of people in power are all about. And it's um, wonderful to have someone like yourself um, come forward who doesn't even want to address that crap and just wants to bring people together. So kudos to you, man. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and then we'll land the plane. All right. Um, So what's your vision for this message? Like, I I get you're getting to a lot of people, but you obviously need to get to a whole lot more if you want to make the kind of difference that you want to. So A, what's your vision for that? And what is the most frustrating aspect about the fact that you're not getting to as many people as you should be getting as, as quickly as you want to? Uh, oh boy. That's a, that's a very complicated, uh, it's complicated. (laughs) Um, I realized that just because there's only one of me and it is my story and whatnot, uh, it is incumbent upon me to, um, obviously I, I, I travel all around the country prior to the pandemic. I was probably doing about 60 presentations a year. So obviously on the road quite a bit. Um, corporations, government agencies, high schools, colleges, all over the place. Uh, once the pandemic hit, it became much more difficult. Obviously, we were doing everything virtually, as we are now. But um, but it, I, I I did have a I do have a, a recording of the play performed live, and we use that for a time. But it's really different um, seeing it live than seeing it on a videotape, and so. Um, it's been difficult, um, and it's been really hard on my business. Um, I went from doing 60 presentations a year to, you know, maybe doing 20. It's been very, very difficult and very, and we're still, you know, I mean, you know, part of our, our marketing is about, you know, getting the word out there. We have a lot of repeat business. We have a lot of word of mouth because it's obviously very successful people really enjoying the message and, and the conversations. I offer audiences a set of tools, a set of seven tools. So I'm actually giving them takeaways from each of the presentations. I go over the tools with them during the talk back and they can take those tools away and use them. Um, we have the two books that we, you know, um, uh, try to market as well. I'm not on much social media. Um, I'm on Instagram. Um, and I only actually got forced to be on Instagram by a friend who said, you have to have a presence. Your message needs to get out there. 
but I'm not on any other social media and primarily because I find social media to be what I would consider anti-social media. It's filled, <laughs> it's filled with garbage and misinformation. And, and it also, I will say, is not the, it's not a conversation. I'm trying to promote this idea of a conversation. And if we're going to converse, we are certainly not going to do that online. That's not a conversation. Um, and so I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on that thing called Twitter or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I'm not on TikTok or any of that. We do have a presence on Instagram. Um, and again, I, I, I not a big presence. So th- those are the things we're doing to try to get the the word out there. And and you know, I'm speaking with people like you, trying to get on podcasts and and sure. spread the message. I at one time had entertained the idea of um, turning this story and what I do into sort of a a mini, um, shall we say, television series. You know, now on streamers, they have these series that are like, I don't know, four or eight parts long. And you could tell the story as well as the story of how I've gone out into the to the universe and tried to spread the message. I think it's a very positive, as you pointed out, a very positive, uplifting message. But, well, first of all, Hollywood's on strike. <laughs> and uh, it's trying to get something done in Hollywood is, is a, a maddening experience. I've tried so many different ways. I was involved in Hollywood many, many years ago. And I was in some movies and some television shows. And it's, it's not an easy business. And so um, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I know I've got a couple more years in me, a couple more good years in me. And then I think I'm done. But... Uh, I, I, I believe so passionately in the message and I'm not going to stop what I'm doing and I'm not going to stop talking to people like yourself. And I'm sure, and I'm you know positive that people like yourself and others who are listening, your listeners are going to spread this message. And I got to hope that that's going to be the thing that just keeps going. And yes, I wish there, as you said, that there were more of me doing what I'm doing, but there are, I will say there are other people spreading a positive message, trying to bring people together. Um, You know, I could name a a couple, you know, of people who I've just um, read recently, who I think are really trying to make people come together and to make people feel included and to create an inclusive environment. And so I'm not the only guy out there doing what I'm doing, but I'm the only guy doing what I'm doing in the way that I'm doing it. So. Amen. Uh, so Michael, if someone wants to get a hold of you, find out more yeah. about, uh, the play, how to book it, what's that look like? Yeah, what's absolutely. About? Thank you for asking me. So, uh, we have a website. It's, I say we all the time. I have an assistant who works with me and she does a lot of things for me. Um, the website is incognito the play, all one word, www.incognitotheplay.com. You can find all kinds of things there. You can find a, I call it a tour schedule. I guess it is to some degree. Most of the presentations I do are closed to the public because they're private things with corporations or high schools or things of that sort. But every once in a while, there might be a presentation that's open to the public and you can discover that, that there at the website. You can bu- you can purchase books at the website. Again, I mentioned the books earlier, but you can purchase those books at the website. Um, I also have a podcast. It's called Incognito the Podcast. Um, I'm in my ending up the fifth season now and the podcast is based on 
I interview people from all different fields and disciplines on how they go about creating in creating inclusive environments. So mm. as in my travels, Nikki, across the country, I have come across people who are restaurateurs, who are um, lawyers, who are doctors, who are mental health professionals, who are diversity and inclusion people, who are from all different walk, all politicians, even I've interviewed a couple politicians. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know it's crazy. Um, but anyway, all these different fields, all these different disciplines, and in those disciplines, those fields, these people are doing what we might consider diversity, equity, and inclusion work. They're trying to bring people together, but they're not diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals. They're restaurateurs, they're teachers, they're doctors, they're lawyers. So what I'm interviewing them and trying to give listeners is how do they go about doing it? How do they go about creating an inclusive environment? One, one I, this really sticks out to me and I don't know why, but I guess because I really like the series. I interviewed a guy who's actually a family friend just recently. He's a teacher and he's an alderman. So he's a politician in this little town that I grew up in. Uh, in, in northern uh, uh, Illinois, uh, Waukegan, Illinois. And I was asking him, like, how does he bring people together? What What is the message that he brings to people? And he said something. He said, well, you know, I this is something that has really stuck with me over the years. And I, I said, I, I think I heard it on Ted Lasso, the series Ted Lasso, which I loved. Lots of people love that series. But the, the message is be curious, not judgmental. Wow, that is so simple. And so beautiful, you know, be curious instead of judgmental. And so messages like that and other messages that that guests bring to the table, I think, have been so valuable um, for listeners to pick up on. So you can find the podcast at the website as well. Again, incognitotheplay.com. Um, you can find all kinds of different things at the website. So that's how people and you can write me there if you're interested in, in, in learning more. Um, please write me. So that that's where people would find me. So, um, Michael, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, this has been a great episode. The emerging thought leader episodes are usually only about 20 minutes long. So you <laughs> actually showed some genuine thought leadership and you had me keep you on longer. Um, and one thing I'll say, I think I like the word unifier more than the word diversity, equity, and inclusion these sure. days, because that that phrase, unfortunately, has been uh, become controversial uh, through certain certain people misusing it. But unifier, man, is, is good for me. Uh, that, that's just my two cents worth. But it's yeah. the, the, the it's not it's not the the moniker that matters. What matters is the intention behind it. And your intentions, good and beautiful and pure. So thank you. Thank you, Nikki, so much. Sometime we'll have a conversation about your Iranian uh, upbringing and, and, your, and your Christian Happy Iranian to. upbringing as well. Yeah. Happy to. Happy to. Yeah. Listener, Michael Fosberg, the real deal. A man with Ar Ar Armenian, Swedish, and African-American in his background. <laughs> Got to tell you, that's a hell of a combination right there. A hell of a combination right there. And a man uh, who has thought deeply about some issues and come up with a beautiful and very human way of making these issues relatable to uh, all of us. The Unifier. I'm going to call you the Unifier. That's my nickname for you going forward. Love it. And 
Um, if you want to find out more about his work, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or the show notes at uh, anywhere you listen to the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, you know, Audible, what have you, wherever it is that you do it. Make sure you you listen to this. It's worth listening to. I'm, I'm going to take some time and familiarize myself with, with his website, some of his work. And make sure that you do that. And on, on that note, uh, Michael, God bless you, brother. That wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about the one and only Michael Fosberg, go to the show notes and go to his website. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.